Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 21st of June, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, we're getting kicked off with uh, an article that Boris has chosen to publish in The Telegraph. It's headlined, We are injecting funds to restore Britain's status as a scientific superpower. Had it not been for our scientists, we would not now be able to enjoy the most basic human freedoms, is how it's subtitled. Um, so what did he say? Uh, he, he basically said that, you know, well, let's just run through it, shall we? He said that uh, I can't think of a time, that's him, he can't think of a time in the last 100 years when the entire population of this country has been so deeply and so obviously indebted to science and to scientists. So everybody should be totally indebted. It's sort of uh, never in all of human history is so many owed so much to so few or whatever the quote is, excuse me if I got that wrong. But anyway, had it not been for our scientists, we would not now be able to enjoy the most basic human freedoms, hugging relatives, meeting friends, playing football, going to the pub, or at least not without the risk of spreading a lethal disease. Uh, he published this in the Telegraph. He's standing by every word of this. Uh, it is thanks to the vaccine rollout that we lit that literally every person and every family in this country has an immediate future that is happier, more prosperous and more full of hope op and opportunity. Uh, and for those who are managing to listen to this without being ill in a bucket, uh, it is incredible. And if you think I'm belaboring this point, it's because it needs belaboring, he said. Uh, so this is the moment to learn this stark lesson of the pandemic, our daily dependence on high quality scientific research. It's also the moment to abandon any notion that government can be strategically indifferent or treat research as a matter of abstract uh, academic speculation. I'm not suggesting that government should try to exercise scientific judgment or impose some dogma on the scientific world, like the deranged genetic theories of Stalinist Russia. On the contrary, it's because we want to support high science and to foster research that may or may not, or may or may not lead nowhere. Okay, uh, that we are setting up this high risk, high reward ARIA agency on the lines of DARPA in the United States. Uh, we need to intensify the search for the unknown unknowns. Well, I think perhaps they might want to start with the search for Boris's brain. But anyway, let's uh, have a look at what they are intending to do, uh, because it's very, very interesting. Uh, they're setting up a new science and technology council, which he will head. Uh, and they're setting up a new Office for Science and Technology Strategy, which Patrick Valance will head, and that is based in the Cabinet Office. So maybe you could say, welcome to the programme, David. And perhaps you could explain to me how this is not the centralisation of scientific dogma inside the Cabinet Office, as with every other form of correct narrative. Just wow. What a start that was from Boris. I, I mean, this is incredible stuff. Um, I, I love this. I mean, as, as a stand-up routine, this has really got it nailed. Um, the scientists have delivered basic human, human freedoms. They have given us our basic human freedoms. Scientists like Neil Ferguson, I'm assuming he means. The scientists who took away the basic human freedoms over something which was no more threatening than seasonal flu, right? They've made us happier and more prosperous. Okay, happy and more prosperous, those are relative terms. Relative to what? Relative to 2018? Relative to 2019? 
No, relative to the period when they had closed the entire economy down because they panicked and either didn't know what to do or wanted to rule the world. Um, then he says, then he says, the genetic theories of Stalinist Russia. No, no, Stalinist Russia had ideological theories. The genetic theories, they were mostly associated with Hitlerian Germany, but that's not where they started. They started, well, the Hitlerian Germany got them from the eugenics movement in America, who after the war changed their, their name to the genetics the science of genetics, because eugenics had got somewhat of a bad name. And of course, it's genetics that we're now pushing in the UK, which was where they, after all, started with, uh, with um, uh, uh, was it Galton, yes. Um, and so that's, that's a nice little dodge. It's all the Russians, it's not us. We're, we're, we're pushing genetics research that's government-led, government that's going to be directed by the cabinet office for strategic reasons, but it's the Russians that are bad for reasons not explained. Uh, and it's all been run from the cabinet office. Outstanding propaganda from Boris Johnson. Not a word of truth in it, of course. Very funny. Um, and completely the opposite of um, truth and reason. That last um, point, David, I think is the critical one. We've got the truth absolutely turned on its head. Um, so what is this satanic policy by the British government? Boris Johnson fully in bed with it. That's what it seems to be to me. Well, it gets worse because thank you very much for one of our eagle-eyed viewers that said, have we seen this document, which is freely available on the uh, uh, on the web. Here we are. This is Ministry of Defence, Human Augmentation, the Dawn of a New Paradigm, a Strategic Implications Project. project. And uh, I know the print's a bit small on this, but the <clears throat> fascinating thing about this docu document is it's the Ministry of Defence in partnership with the Bundeswehr. So we're working with the Germans, David, you'll be glad to hear, on enhancing human beings in order to fight warfare. So this is a mixture of artificial intelligence and uh, gen genome sequencing. And robotics as well. And robotics. And we have to do this because if we don't do it, then somebody else is gonna get in there first and they're gonna have the upper hand. Um, we've only really started to get the lid off what's contained in this document, but it is, I think shocking is the best we can describe. Um, Mike, you particularly liked this uh, particular image. So we've got six million years of evolution to where we are today. And now we have the tools in our hands to decide how our continued evolution should be shaped. So apparently the military, and let's not beat around the bush, the military is supposed to specialize in killing people in the most effective, efficient way possible. Um, these are the people that are now going to decide how our continued evolution should be shaped. And uh, of course, we can see that uh, we've apparently come from monkeys. We've learned how to use mobile phones. Uh, now we're going to have assisted uh, devices and we're going to have robotic limbs. And the last image is the one that this document is really all about, which is how our brains are going to be fully connected to computers. David, you're looking astonished. Yeah, citation required for all of that because, of course, there is no evidence. This is not 
science. This is narrative, and it's also science fiction, evidence on the fiction. Uh, I would encourage anyone who wants to find out what uh, government policy is going to be in a few years' time to start to read science fiction. Uh, start with uh, Fred Paul's uh, classic work, Man Plus. Okay. Let's uh, move on to cards then. Well, I think it's about time to put the cards on the table as we see the uh, new reality around us. Uh, the first thing that is quite clear now is that we're dealing with a scam around COVID-19. There's no question about this, that the so-called uh, scientific knowledge put out by Boris Johnson's favourite scientists uh, just does not stack up. And of course, many scientists are pointing this out, but none of them get airtime. So probably, Mike, you'll be pleased that the first card I thought we should bring onto the table is Boris. Clearly the Joker, um, but uh, we've got to qualify it because he plays the court jester, but is a deeply flawed and dangerous puppet. I've been saying this man very dangerous for many years. I now think we're starting to see exactly how dangerous he is. What is in that brain of his? Well, nothing about the milk of kindness for fellow human beings. There's something far nastier. He's a puppet of the political, industrial, pharmaceutical and banking overlord. So this man is completely controlled and he's now playing the game of vaccinating the world. That's what came out of G7. Well, I think we should bring in his friend and colleague, Bill Gates. But as you notice, this card is an ace, but it's a bit creased. It's a bit soiled. And that's largely because, of course, this man's friendship with uh, pedophile Jeffrey Epstein has now come onto the um, public uh, media table. And it's very noticeable. The BBC's dropped him like a brick. Seems like it. Seems like it. So a soiled ace. David, were you trying to come in there? Well, I was just pointing out, uh, I discovered at the weekend that um, Bill Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, actually fund the Lucis Trust, which of course came from the Lucifer Publishing Company. I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, we've got uh, Bill Gates. Let's follow him up with June Rain. Uh, we think she's the queen of the MHRA. Uh, what can we say about her? Well, she's a powerful card, but not for the protection of the public of UK. She's a powerful card in the big pharma pro-vaccine camp. She claims to be ensuring the public is safe from vaccine adverse reactions but she fails to investigate the vaccine damage that she encourages to be reported through the yellow card system. So I think that uh, we've got her down as a very, very devious uh, queen of diamonds here. Uh, let's bring in the Jack. Uh, we've got Matt Hancock, of course, in that position. I think that suits him, Jack the lad. Um, lightweight card in the big, va uh, big pharma vaccine pack under the full control of more powerful players. I don't think we can ever believe that this man is making the decisions. He's just the idiot speaking out. Um, clearly now slightly soiled. If you have a good look at that card, it's uh, a little bit creased and damaged. Um, he's often mistaken for a joker. Uh, this one is definitely an ace, David Halpern. Uh, we're gonna call him a dark ace, ace of spades and often overlooked because he's a key card in the big pharma vax and he's a powerful player in the government's game of applied behavioral psychology. And of course, on top of the psychology, we better bring in Tim Davey, the director general. And I think it's appropriate that he's king of hearts because of course his job 
which is highly valued by Big Pharma, is as control of the five billion pound pro-vaccine propaganda machine, which is designed to win all of our hearts and minds. And I just wanted to follow this up with a little overview to remind us of what's really going on under David Scott's government of occupation, as he likes to describe it. Um, so the first thing we, we can say with confidence now is that the constitution has been undermined and largely destroyed. Um, behavioral psychology is attacking the public mind. And now we've got the great 19 pandemic scare and the objective of that is to reset society and establish a new normal. So if we look at these in a bit more detail, what's happened to the constitution? Well, common law has been sidelined. The cabinet officer with its thousands of advisors and army now forms that unaccountable government of occupation. The parliamentary debate has been silenced. The political party system has been destroyed. Are there, is there an opposition, Mike? I don't... No, there's no opposition. There's no opposition. The courts have been subsumed into a state-controlled system. The police are political policy enforcers. City council and local authorities have also been subsumed into the central state system. And the BBC is now fully established and very clear as the state propaganda arm. And if we follow through on the behavioural side, the government conspired to develop, fund and employ applied behavioural psychology to achieve its political aims. The behavioural insights team, formerly the behavioural change unit, has integrated with the cabinet office to form and help enforce political policy at all levels. And I think that's very clear that people understand it's not just in relation to COVID-19, it's all levels. The government boasts of its ability to change minds and behaviour without the public being aware, and they did that in the Mindspace document back in 2010. And uh, if we follow through, let's not forget the government conspired with the French experts to unleash brainwashing in UK, France, uh, ultimately, that spread to USA, Australia, Germany and others. And those meetings were facilitated by the Franco-British Council. And now we've got SAGE and the Behavioural Insights team unleashing coordinated psychological attack on the mind of the public. The goals which they have declared are interpersonal confusion, conflict, stress and fear, all conditions which make the individual more susceptible to behavioural reframing, better known as brainwashing. And if we have a look at the pandemic itself, well, the whole aim of this is to terrify the public with the idea of a pandemic. And uh, the key bit is that the governments and the Office of National Statistic data has largely showed that the killer pandemic claims were not substantiated. Uh, the proactive countermeasures which the government has introduced have further increased stress and anxiety in the public by lockdown, social distancing, mass closure of amenities, workplaces and schools. And the key government policy objectives now are setting a new normal and we're being told, we're being seeded with the idea that the future will be dominated by more dangerous viral pandemics. And if you think you're going to challenge what's going on, well, thank you again to a viewer who said, were we aware of this document published by the World Health Organization how to respond to vocal vaccine deniers in public. Interestingly enough, this came out in 2017, and this is guidance for spokesperson of any health authority 
on how to respond to vocal vaccine deniers. And if you have a look at the contents here, you can get an idea of the scale of this document. And uh, we thought we'd do a bit of research into uh, who was behind it. So the lead authors were a guy called Philip Schmidt of Germany and uh, Katrin Bach Habersat uh, from the World Health Organization itself. Well, we just stuck with the young man. Here's Philip Schmidt. And I'm just going to put across this. Is this really the young man controlling our behavior? And it appears it is. And I think we should be deeply worried. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. We'd be very much welcome and that would be very much appreciated. Also do share our material uh, that you find on the various platforms. Um, video coming tonight. Tonight, um, up at eight o'clock, um, we've been having an in-depth look at the whole issue of genome sequencing. Uh, Mike and Patrick were talking on Friday's news excuse me, about the risks of that. Um, this um, analysis with myself and Debbie Evans gives the viewer and listener an overview as to what this is all about and why we should be deeply concerned about Boris Johnson's enthusiasm for genome sequencing. Uh, so that'll be on the UK Column website at ukcolumn.org. Uh, and uh, we'll just advertise the next big one, which is uh, the next big event in London, uh, Freedom from Vax Passport Enslavement is how it's being subtitled, Saturday the 26th of June, starting at 1 p.m. I'm sure uh, if you have a look at that uh, Telegram channel there, uh, t.me slash London Rallies, uh, the details of exactly where everybody's meeting will be available in due course. Uh, but uh, that means that, uh, in fact, there'll be no UK column news on Friday or on Monday uh, because uh, we intend to go to that. So, uh, David, you're coming to that as well. Yes, I'm joining you. Uh, looking forward to it and looking forward to uh, meeting some UK column viewers there, I hope. Um, and uh, we're also planning on uh, on the Sunday, the day following it, on uh, being in the, the green outside the House of the Parliament. Uh, there's the, the, the three of us between 12 and 2. So if you're in the London area and you fancy a chat, uh, please come along and see us. Excellent. And we'd love to see you, of course. Uh, yes, right. Now let's uh, move on to this. Uh, this was the inflation figures for the UK that came out uh, last week, of course. Um, we kept them back until today uh, because I was uh, wanting to speak to David about this in particular. Um, so uh, what do we have? Uh, we've got inflation back up over 2% uh, and uh, nobody's concerned about it. It's fine. It's not a problem. Uh, don't worry about it. It's 2.1%, I think it was, which means that the governor of the Bank of, Re of England has to write another letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer to explain why he hasn't met his 2% target. Um, so he gets to write again. But I just wanted to remind everybody about what uh, was said the previous month by Andrew Bailey from the Bank of England uh, about the fact that inflation was starting to go up uh, pretty steeply. Uh, and he said at the time, our forecast at the moment is we do expect inflation to pick up in the next month or so, really. Uh, it's been under 1% for my entire time as governor. Every opportunity I've had to write a letter to the chancellor to explain why I've had to take. Uh, we don't see that uh, sort of, in a sense, momentum continuing forward at that pace at all. Uh, well, they expected that the inflation level would be 1.8% uh, for May, so it was 2.1% instead, and so that was higher than they were expecting, so it sort of took them uh, by surprise. But he went on to say a month ago, 
Uh, at the moment, we don't see that evidence. We don't see that evidence, but we will watch it. Of course, we must do very carefully. Now, the point we made uh, last month about this, of course, is the reason that inflation has been so slow, uh, so low at the moment, isn't because of the amount of money in circulation or the amount of money being pumped into circulation, but because the velocity of money went off a cliff uh, and uh, as a result of the pandemic and so on. Um, so anyway, we're not the only people that have been talking about this. And so I want to highlight this article here uh, from Gold Money website. It's, it's just titled simply, Too Much Liquidity. So let's have a look at what these guys are saying. Uh, they say, the fact of the matter is that the world is now awash with excess money, the two greatest inflationists being the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England. Uh, and first of all, David, uh, they publish a nice convenient table here showing uh, how central bank balance sheets have expanded since 2007 to the present day. And what we have is the Federal Reserve uh, expanding by 793%. I'll just say that again, 793%. The Bank of England only 1% behind at 792%. The Bank of Japan, 541%. Uh, the European Central Bank, 408%. But China is doing a little bit better at only 125%. So um, before we move on, just let's just get your thoughts on this expansion of central bank balance sheets. This is just unprecedented. So you've got the, the biggest ever expansion in the balance sheet of the world reserve currencies, right? Because the world reserve currency is primarily the dollar, second to that's the euro, and then in comes the yen. Uh, the Japanese figure there, remember, that's on the back of enormous money printing for 20 years before that. So that's another 580-odd percent on top of that. Um, the world is indeed awash with um, with cheap money, with uh, paper money that's or digital money that's not worth the, uh, the paper it's not printed on. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on with what they say here. It's interesting that the Bank of England's chief economist has chosen this summer to leave the bank, deciding at the same time to no longer toe the official line about rising prices. Now they're talking about Andy Haldane, uh, who is off. He's not sticking around to see what comes next. Uh, so just briefly, David, what are your thoughts on, on that decision? Well, it's very interesting timing. Um, I, I, I viewed his pronouncements and, and comments for some time, and he, he does seem to have had a very reasonable handle on, on, on reality. And uh, now he's leaving, and I think that's very telling. I think it's a, it's a real data point uh, when, when you start losing chief economists. The next thing we'll need to use is, um, is the finance minister index. We'll see how many finance ministers and chancellors of the Exchequer we go through in the next uh, five years. I would predict it would be quite a large number. Uh, okay, so what was their next point? Evidenced by the launch of a 1 trillion euro COVID stimulus package this week, the destruction being wrought by the European Central Bank is economic as well as monetary. Uh, and then they go on to say this, uh, as the purchasing power of the currency declines, Public demand for it will increase, not because it's wanted per se, but because its purchasing power is declining faster than it's being pushed into circulation. And they re reinforce this uh, with this graph here, David. Yes, yeah, so this is this is the, the purchasing price, the uh, purchasing value of the dollar, the dollar trade weighted index. 
Um, and remember, this is the primary reserve currency for the world. And you see it's dropped from 103 uh, down to about 91. So that's a very substantial um, reduction. But of course, that's that 11% um, reduction or so is uh, relatively modest compared to the actual increase in, in money supply and compared to uh, some of the inflation we're seeing elsewhere. So we suspect that's only the start of it. Uh, yes, but uh, just briefly, I mean, that reduction in purchasing power is already having a major effect on the price of some pretty basic commodities, including, uh, you know, food and uh, building materials. It is, and with it, huge disruption. And the disruption is everywhere. Uh, in the construction uh, area, we've seen uh, steel prices considerably more than double uh, in about six months. Uh, and uh, we are in a position where uh, suppliers can't really say what the price will be more than a couple of months out. They just don't know. Uh, and there's all sorts of other indications that the, the, the economic system is showing horrendous signs of distress everywhere. I went for a McDonald's uh, snack last night. I wanted, a, I wanted something to drink. I know I hear you sighing. I know you don't approve. But I quite like McDonald's, and I went along to McDonald's. No buns for, for most of the products. They couldn't do a wrap because of supply problems. McDonald's can't get supplies to make burgers. This is unprecedented. There's disruption all the way through the economy. We have both um, a, a, a labour shortage and high unemployment. This is not a good sign. These are all signs of things breaking down, of things becoming disjointed, and they tend to be precursors of very high inflation. Um, you're getting a sitting in the chat box for this, by the way, but uh, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, and <laughs> the, next, the next statement is, welcome to the everything bubble, the everything bubble whipped up by American and British neo-Keynesian policymakers who are now increasingly cornered by their own monetary fallacies. And I'm just going to end this with this reminder of this quote from uh, the, the governor of the Bank of England again about a month ago. I would not wish to suggest that we've hit the limits of QE, that's quantitative easing. We keep that under careful review, but there are no natural limits. David, that is an absolutely staggering statement. There are no natural limits to uh, uh, QE. Somebody in the chat box said, how much are wheelbarrows? And this is a very important question because it is absolutely clear they don't intend to turn the taps off here. No, because can they? Right, we're now the biggest. One of the things that inflation does is it makes it cheap to be a borrower, particularly if you're on fixed price um, interest rates from previous borrowing. Who's the biggest borrower? The state, the government. Right? Can they really do it? Can they start paying, um, you know, four, five, six, ten percent for uh, your know, interest rates on the borrowing? No, we're already paying more interest, even with uh, these artificially low interest rates, than we're spending on on the NHS. So. It's going to be uh, impossible for them to get out of the trap they've created. They're going to have to keep going. They've only got one trick left. Um, okay, and so they keep going. Ultimately, that's going to result in the collapse of the world's major currencies. Um, this is why they're developing this central bank digital currency infrastructure at the moment, I believe. Yes, and this will be international, right? Because the, the, the explanation will be, well, even, even the mighty dollar has fallen. Even, a, even an individual economy 
as as uh, robust and powerful and large as the continental United States is just too small. So we're going to have to have world currency and world everything else and um, world bankers to direct it. And under these, uh, under the wise guidance of the Bank of International Settlements, uh, we will have, um, well, what will we have? Enough to eat? Time will tell. Yeah, I think probably not. Uh, wise guidance. Okay, let's move on then to uh, to the media and censorship. And uh, here is the uh, wonderful Oliver Dowden, who's the Digital Secretary, of course. Uh, he, uh, some time ago, was saying this, defending the country from misinformation and dis digital interference is a top priority for this government. Uh, and so, of course, uh, this government is pushing through the uh, online harms, uh, online uh, safety bill in the not too distant future. But I just wanted to go back a little bit because Oliver Dowden has, has written an article uh, for the press as well. Uh, he's uh, joining Boris in that. But I want to go back uh, to a little bit of history um, to talk about how this government is uh, shoring up the mainstream press in this country. So we go back to 2018 and Matt Hancock was the digital secretary at that point. Uh, and he uh, in the Houses of uh, Commons was launching the Karen Cross Review uh, many people may remember that. Uh, the Karen Cross Review, he said, will explore whether intervention may be required to safeguard the future of our free and independent press. Now, if you've got to remember, if you go back to 2011, the government had attempted to gain control of the press through the Leveson Inquiry. That effort hadn't worked. Uh, in the meantime, there were efforts to uh, uh, take, go on to take on a second effort at the uh, uh, Leveson 2. And he, at the same point, uh, announced that he would not be proceeding with Levison too, but he expressed his worries about the uh, future of the press uh, because by this stage already, uh, by 2018, they had the press pretty much in their pockets. So he went on to say that we, the government, will take action to tackle the challenges our media faced today, not a decade ago. Uh, and he appointed Dame Frances Cairn Cross to bring her experience in journalism and academia to tackle these issues with a view to examine the press and protect the future of high quality journal journalism. Uh, he trembled, he said, at the thought, I tremble at the thought of a media regulated by the state in a time of malevolent forces in politics. Get this wrong, and I fear for the future of our liberal democracy. So that was in March 2018. Uh, in uh, middle of 2018, the uh, Karen Cross Review was formally stood up, and then in early 2019, they, uh, they uh, uh, issued the report. And they were talking about new codes of conduct to, conduct to rebalance the relationship between publishers and online platforms. They're certainly doing that with the online safety bill. Uh, the Com Com uh, Competition Markets Authority was to investigate the online advertising market. That is underway as well uh, because they feel that Google and Facebook in particular aren't giving enough money to the press. Uh, online platforms' efforts to improve Users' news experience should be placed under regular, regulatory supervision. That's being done by the Online Safety Bill, and Ofcom will be the body that does that. Uh, they're going to. She's recommended developing a media literacy strategy alongside Ofcom industry and stakeholders, and they are going for that as hard as they can, as we reported on this program last week. Ofcom should explore the market impact of BBC News and whether it inappropriately steps into areas better served by commercial news providers. Uh, they did that and they have made the BBC pay for some uh, so-called commercial uh, news. But we'll come on to that in a second. A new innovation fund should be launched aiming to improve the supply of public interest news. That was linked to the BBC as well. 
Uh, and uh, the next recommendation was new forms of tax reliefs to encourage payments for online news content and support local and investigative journalism. They're certainly in the process of doing that, expanding financial support for local news by extending the BBC's local democracy reporting service. They've done that. So BBC trained journalists being pushed into uh, uh, local news. Uh, and of course, you don't know that they're funded and, and supported by the BBC. Uh, and a new independent institute should be created to ensure the provision of public interest news. Well, they didn't bother with that one. So that's the only one that they are not, uh, they either haven't already done or they're not already uh, progressing. So let's have a look at Oliver Dowden's uh, article itself and see what he was, see what he's saying. Uh, a free media is one that has a diverse range of opinions and voices. And I, as I said earlier this week, GB News is a welcome addition to that diversity. Well, I'm not seeing any diversity from GB News. This morning, they were uh, pushing the vaccine narrative as hard as they possibly could. They were fully supportive of it, uh, and they couldn't get enough of it. That's why they're welcome. Uh, of course, yes, <laughs> yes. But a free media is one that has a diverse range of opinions and views. No, uh, Oliver Dowden is lying at this point because he knows that uh, the free media he's talking about uh, has a unified range of opinions of, of, uh, of opinions and voices. Uh, we need outlets and commentators who cover the range of political spectrum, uh, who can speak truth to power and are willing to challenge dogma and orthodoxy. This does not exist in the British media. I don't think it exists any, uh, in the media anywhere in the Western world or in the world, perhaps. Uh, this is exactly why, he wrote, uh, when we are developing legislation to boost online safety and tackle social media abuse, I was determined to make sure it couldn't be used to stifle debate, he lied. Uh, we'll explain why in a second. Uh, there will be a new requirement for social media companies to protect freedom of expression, he lied. But we'll come on to that in a second. The largest social media platforms will need to be clear uh, to users about what they allow on their sites and enforce it consistency, consistently. And this is how we know that he's just lied. Because this isn't about a diverse range of views appearing on social media. This is about making sure that we as individuals know in advance what we're allowed to say on social media platforms and what we're not allowed to say on social media platforms. And, but they will enforce that consistently. So we don't need to worry that we're going to be, uh, you know, perhaps kicked off compared to other people if we're saying the same things as those people. We'll be allowed to say the same things as everybody else. It's only if we're saying something different that we get kicked off. Uh, and he went on to write, uh, we've also got special safeguards for journalistic and democratically important content. Uh, those are grounds of function, the grounds of a functioning democracy. So uh, those are the grounds of a functioning democracy, David, uh, but that's only if you're not living in a democracy. It's only if you're not living in the real world. Dogma and orthodoxy. Uh, I challenged dogma and orthodoxy. I was thrown off of Twitter. Uh, where's, the Scot where's the British government riding to my rescue? Where's the, where's the politician saying, oh, no, no, we've got this media organisation here who are challenging us on the whole COVID vaccine thing. And this is healthy for democracy. Don't you, don't you nasty Twitter, uh, attack them. I'm still waiting on that one. Um, freedom of expression has been defined as only what the World Health Organization says in, t in, in terms of COVID. Even when the World Health, Health Organization then changes its policy and says the opposite of what it was previously saying, then to say what it was previously saying becomes banned speech. And then when something else happens in the mainstream, all of, all of a sudden things can be said which couldn't be said. We had John Stewart on the Colbert show over the last few days talking about the Wuhan 
uh, lab leak theory. Well, that was prohibited until a few weeks ago. Now there's some emails leaked from Fauci. We can all talk about that, apparently. But that was prohibited. That would have got you banned. Uh, it was interesting watching how awkward Colbert looked over the whole thing. That was quite funny. Uh, you could see his he could he could see his career pass in front of his eyes. It was it was quite amusing. But that's that's a change in what's allowable. And what's allowable keeps moving. It's not that we can investigate and we can challenge and we can we can raise questions and concerns. No, we're constantly faced with censorship when we do any of these things. Uh, that's absolutely right. And uh, well, if anybody's in any doubt about where the main uh, social media platforms stand, uh, here they are, Snapchat, TikTok, Reddit, YouTube, uh, these leading social media platforms, uh, popular with young people, according to the government, are supporting the vaccination program by encouraging their users to get coronavirus jabs. Uh, the partnerships comes as uh, all adults age 18 and over are invited to receive a vaccine in England. Uh, as the vaccine program continues at unprecedented pace and scale, so Snapchat users can use NHS stickers, a filter, and later this month an, an augmented reality lens that all read, I've had my vaccine. So that's good stuff. Uh, and uh, Reddit has hosted two live Ask Me Anything sessions on the coronavirus forum. Uh, it's uh, featured experts, in inverted commas, like Dr. Uh, Amalina Bakri, uh, answering questions from Downing Street. Um, Reddit will continue to host question and answers over the coming weeks uh, in order to help people make sure they only get the uh, approved message on this. TikTok's support for the vaccine rollouts includes adding the NHS I've had my COVID vaccine stickers to its library for users to share. Uh, and it's also working with Team Halo, which is a group of scientists using the platform to provide the latest information on vaccines with entertaining and shareable videos. Uh, and in collaboration with the NHS, YouTube has rolled out a video campaign with the tagline, let's not go back, uh, to remind core, uh, its core 18 to 34-year-old audience of the importance of being vaccinated. So YouTube, very keen that we don't go back to the old normal. Um, and in the meantime, Facebook, Twitter, and Google have committed to the principle that no company should profit from or promote false information about COVID-19 vaccines to respond to flagged content more swift, sorry, swiftly and to work with the authorities to promote scientifically accurate messages. David, give me a quick definition of what a scientifically ac accurate message might be. Science is false. Most science uh, writing is false. What we're talking about is the approved political narrative. I was thrown off Twitter for saying two things. One, I pointed out that vaccines were killing people. That's now in the mainstream. It's not open to debate. But I was thrown off for it nonetheless. And the other thing I said was... Actually, I can't remember. What was the other thing? There was, there was another one I got thrown off for. It was something about statistics. I mean, yeah, I was talking about vaccine harm statistics. That was it. I mentioned their own data. I mentioned the government data. And it was accurate and I was thrown off. I'm very confused, Mike. Uh, yes. Well, I'd just say you shouldn't be, David, because, of course, earlier on I pointed out that the government and the Office of National Statistics data on COVID was largely correct. It was the spin that was put on it, which was incorrect. So they're very frightened of you looking at data because the spin then becomes obvious. Uh, now, very occasionally, David, of course, the fact that the uh, mainstream press is utterly controlled breaks surface. Uh, and uh, there was a pretty spectacular video 
uh, from the United States and Fox in particular last week? Yeah, this is this is Fox 26, Houston. Uh, the young lady is a reporter called Ivory uh, Hacker, Ivory Hacker, and um, God bless her. Just have a look. Outages across the region. Fox 26 reporter Ivory Hacker is live in Montgomery County to take a look at that aspect. Thanks, guys. That's right. Before we get to that story, I want to let you, the viewers, know that Fox Corp has been muzzling me to keep certain information from you, the viewers. And from what I'm gathering, I am not the only reporter being too subjected to this. I am going to be releasing some recordings about what goes on behind the scenes at Fox because it applies to you, the viewers. I found a nonprofit journalism group called Project Veritas. It's going to help put that out tomorrow, so tune into them. But as for this heat wave across Texas, you can see what it's doing to AC units. This one broken down as we Wasn't that lovely? Can we get her on the uh, UK column news to uh, get a little bit more background to that story? That'd be wonderful. Yes, well, her, there's a full interview now being, being produced by Project Veritas. We'll reach out and we'll see if we can get, get make some contact with her. Uh, I understand she's no longer employed by Fox. <laughs> um, indeed. Uh, now, this one in the mail. Uh, BBC bans white people from applying for £18,000 trainee job in Springwatch and The One Show. Yes, I just want to emphasise this, that the BBC have joined Coca-Cola Corp and are now officially racist. Uh, the race, um, of course, that they're um, objecting to is, uh, is called the British people. They don't like those, um, uh, but they're only, uh, they're only excluding uh, white British from their job adverts. Anyone else can apply. So just so you know, the BBC are now officially racist. Well, what uh, what better point or no better point to uh, in in the news to bring in Tim Davy? Let's get him back on screen. Uh, this is uh, from the UK column on the third of May this year. But uh, Tim Davy was warning over the growing assault on truth as he calls for solidarity with journalists facing intimidation and harassment across the globe. Uh, there he is grinning. You can grin quite a lot if you earn £664,000 a year. Um, but we've got a little bit of video clip where Tim Davey was interviewed um, by the Financial Times. I found this a very interesting little clip. Let's uh, have a, a listen. Now, Tim, um, you know, we all have uh, our own special relationship with the BBC in the UK and you've got you know, vast amounts of news output. You can't possibly monitor it all and watch it all. What, what do you actually listen and watch on a daily basis? Um, personally, I, 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 I spread it around a bit. So actually, I'm, I'm joining you from Glasgow. So I've been uh, uh, with the Good Morning Scotland team uh, <laughs> and actually the, the Scottish Channel uh, 9 bulletin last night, Alex. So the answer to your question <laughs> is I'm immersed in Scottish politics, the... Uh, the Scottish fan zone. So to your question, I mean, I do kind of have a quite a broad uh, listening and viewing um, uh, uh, kind of selection yeah. that I'll go through. I'll also make sure that, you know, that the, the really landmark programmes, whether it's the uh, six o'clock news, 10 o'clock news today and Panorama, you're across, you know, that's what, that's the job. And do you, you know, as editor in chief, do you want more decisions coming up to your level or, or less in the way that you'd be 
running the BBC? Um, I think we're pretty well balanced, but certainly not. It's not about all of the things coming through the system to me. I mean, in some ways, you can over exaggerate the curiosities of the BBC. You think about if you were running a big retail operation, you need those processes, you need those systems so that store managers in that scenario can make their decisions. For me, empowered good editors with proper process. I mean, we're making thousands of hours. And as, as to your point, we have our traumas. We make mistakes now and again, but actually across the world, as we speak today, we've got a brilliant set of editors with very good guidelines delivering very high quality news coverage. I don't think the system works. I, I think it's right that I'm editor in chief and you make those really big calls and you come in and set the tone and do the things you need to. And now and again, there's a call just like there would be in any business. Well, indeed. And, and you know, you, you've made imp impartiality a big kind of theme since okay. taking over. Um, do you feel like you've corrected whatever you wanted to correct already? Or are you going to have to look at more structural no. changes as well? Is there more to come? There's, this is an ongoing project. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, um, and, and I've been very open about it, I think, which is, I think the issue for us was not primarily, oh, there's a lot of noise around it. If you're the national broadcaster, our intent is absolutely to be impartial of a fair and balanced coverage. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. Uh, well, there is a man earning £664,000 a year, uh, right, uh, well, and we noticed that when he was asked a simple question, what do you watch of the BBC's output? He simply didn't answer the question. He said where he was, and he happened to be up in Scotland. So that part of the question not answered. Uh, he then talks about emp empowered, brilliant editors who he then freely admits have been making mistakes, causing problems. Um, this guy is not real, Mike, is he? Uh, and he went on to say, I don't think the system works. I mean, that's clearly, I presume he meant, maybe he was, he was telling us what he actually thought. Uh, but uh, more structural changes were required to, to deal with the impartial, impartiality situation. Does that mean structural changes, that means firing people and replacing them with more woke people? Is that what it is, David? Well, firing people and replacing them with people of the right skin tone, I think, uh, is one of the things. But of course, uh, he was watching the BBC Scottish Nine News, right? And that, that was very interesting because he was a very substantial part of the total audience, right? The, the average from a population member, a population of five and a half million, the average, 15,000 for the Premier News show. So, um, yeah, that's not very good. And um, but they all he also watched Good Morning Scotland. But uh, I wonder if he'd ever heard their uh, their coverage of the name person when they they tried so hard in Good Morning Scotland to set up uh, a demolition of the no to name person campaign, and they set all the experts up. Uh, but they made a mistake of making it open to phone-ins from the public, and they had the biggest on-air disaster you ever heard in your life. It was very glorious. So there's occasionally Good Morning Scotland can be worth a listen. Not often, though. Okay, David. Well, I've got to add that a little while ago, I emailed Tim Davey personally to ask him why the BBC hadn't reported half a million-plus people demonstrating in London and also why the BBC was simply not talking about the MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reactions. 
Well, Tim sent me an email back, which we did show this. Uh, just sorry. hold that one, Mike, sorry. Um, which uh, he did send me an email back at that time uh, saying that he'd received my email, but because he received a lot of emails, he couldn't answer me. But he did send me an email to tell me that he couldn't answer me, but he didn't want to answer me. He then promised me that his team would respond to my email. Well, sure, um, step by step, the days and weeks went past. So I sent him another email saying that, of course, he'd now proved that what he said was not to be trusted. And to my surprise, his team uh, a couple of days ago did produce an email to answer my questions. Now, we're going to put it on screen so that people know what I'm talking about is real, but there's a lot of small print. Um, but uh, I guarantee you this is from the BBC team. So let's have a look. It said that they're sorry um, that I didn't receive a response to a previous contact, but they could find no record of it. So the BBC couldn't even track a, an email to uh, Tim Davey. Our complaints process explains how we offer an efficient and fair service to all. It provides the best value for money for all TV license fee payers, but it does mean we can't guarantee a reply when people contact staff directly, particularly Tim Davey, although he can email you to say he's received your email, but he can't reply. And they went on. Many marches and protests take place at the weekend in the UK. And unfortunately, BBC News is, I can't keep a straight face no, reading this. Many marches and protests take place at the weekend in the UK. And unfortunately, BBC News is unable to cover all protests that take place. Sorry, just remind me what their budget is, Brian. Uh, five billion. Yes. Five billion pounds. Okay. We accept that not everyone will agree with each decision, but stories are chosen due to their editorial merit, for instance, if it's breaking news or an update to a recent news story. So here's the BBC. They think they're talking to a four-year-old and they're not going to report a huge number of people demonstrating on their doorstep and, of course, protesting outside the BBC itself. David, we're, we're all smiling at the moment, but of course, people shouldn't mistake that for us not understanding how serious it is when the national broadcaster shows itself to be utterly untrustworthy and incompetent. Yes, and it was very funny. I mean, it was laughable, but the, you're quite right. The deeper point is that was an article. The BBC said, yes, there was half a million people marching through London. Yes, they marched outside the BBC. Um, and they shouted, shame on you, at the BBC. But the issue is, Mr. Gerrish, we, the BBC, define what is news. And we did not define that as news. Therefore, it was not news. That is the problem. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Well, let's go on to the second part of the email, which was the subject of the yellow card vaccine adverse reactions. And the BBC said we're committed to achieving due impartiality in all our output and reflecting a wide range of subject matter and perspectives across our output as a whole. Throughout the pandemic, we have featured a broad range of contributors with scientific, medical and political experience and expertise who, believe could, who we believe could add insight and value to our coverage and whose views we have examined and challenged on behalf of our audience. We have also, sorry, we have also covered other anti-lockdown protests in the past. 
Well, of course, the BBC has never challenged any views. It's just simply promoted the government's own views, which is pro-vaccine. Uh, but it went on, uh, just give you a, a little bit more. BBC News has covered vaccine risks, including the blood clot risk associated with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, that was apparently COVID vaccines and blood clots, your questions answered. But in that clip that they sent back to me, of course, they did not do any detailed analysis whatsoever into the official vaccine adverse reactions. Whilst BBC News reported that sore arm and headache most common side effects, there was no suggestion that these were key adverse effects, but rather the most common side effects experienced. You can read more on this in the article below. And then they just pointed another article where the BBC simply uh, puffs up the vaccine companies and simply does not report on the vaccine adverse effects. So I think we have to say pretty strongly today that Tim Davey has shown himself to be utterly incompetent and he's running an organisation which is not to be trusted in any shape or form. So if you're an overseas viewer and you're still in the mistaken belief that the BBC is the bastion of truth in the UK, we suggest you switch the UK column from here on. Uh, now, last week, uh, we highlighted this organization, Edgy Productions, and their uh, musical uh, for end of term uh, school play. Uh, wow, what a year. Uh, and this is by uh, Andrew Oxpring and Nick Hayworth. Uh, and it says that where to start homeschooling, empty supermarket shelves, social distancing, bubbles, tears, face masks, not being able to hug our grandparents. These have been extraordinary and challenging times, but through it all, heroes have emerged. And with a strength of spirit, hope in your hearts uh, and a sense of humor, we're coming out the other side. So what better way to commemorate our place in history than a blooming good sing song? Uh, and so 10% of the profits uh, are donated to the Captain Tom Foundation. We'll come on back onto that in a second. Um, so uh, uh, a teacher, so we've just highlighted a couple of uh, parts of this. Uh, that a this is part of the script. The script is available on the website, so if you want to go and have a look at it, uh, please do. So a teacher uh, and her his her class uh, reflect on the monumental events that have shaped our lives in recent times. They discuss the pandemic and how various aspects of lockdown have put us all in some quite challenging situations. As we look at snapshots of these situations, we see that amongst the sadness and frustration, there've been moments of hope, heroism, and even humor and the, so the song. There's a song goes with that called Wow, What a Year. Uh, and then they have another song called Hero, which is all about celebrating frontline workers. Uh, and then another one, Put That Mask On, uh, which is all about considering the rules and restrictions that, was, that we were all subjected to during the lockdown and how confusing they could be and how they seemed to change from one announcement to the next. Uh, and the scenario, the, the play, the scenario in the play is that they join three experts as they prepare to give another COVID briefing to the nation in which they'll outline their latest ideas to flatten the curve uh, and so on. Uh, and then the next song is uh, a shot in the arm. Uh, however, there's light at the end of the tunnel, they say, and the development and rollout of a vaccine. Uh, this has been a cause for celebration and we take a fly on the wall look at how, much, how such celebrations may have taken place uh, amongst the scientists responsible. Uh, and then it ends with uh, a song called Running Free, uh, because it, once you've had your shot in the arm, you're then free to run around. Um, well, we asked last week uh, how many, because we knew of at least two schools in the country that were running this, uh, this so-called musical, 
uh, as their end of year school play for year sixes, that's 11 year olds. Um, but actually, uh, I've had quite a bit of response uh, from people saying, yes, my school's doing it, my school right across the country and in Scotland as well. Um, well, one of our viewers very kindly wrote to uh, David Lewis or wrote to the company, Edgy Productions, uh, and got a response uh, from David Lewis, who is uh, from that company, one of the founders. Uh, and so I'm just going to run through a little bit of what he said in his response to this. He said, in its entirety and in context, the musical recounts and focuses on the efforts we as a nation have collectively made to get through lockdown. Uh, it celebrates heroes, nurses, doctors, shop assistants, teachers, delivery drivers, parents whom homeschooled their children. And he goes on with a whole list more. Uh, he said that, wow, what a year was written in response to teachers asking for songs and a script for their upper key stage two classes uh, that allow them to reflect on and process the extraordinary and unique experiences of the last 12 months. Uh, since publication, hundreds of schools have requested this musical for their end of year performances. Uh, when performed in context of the scripted scenes uh, that deal with mask wearing and vaccination, the two associated songs serve only to recount uh, that this was part of our collective experience. Well, the titles don't imply that, but anyway, uh, the, the script's there if you want to read it for yourself. Uh, any accusations that this, music, this musical is propaganda for a vaccine or mask agenda have come exclusively for individuals from individuals who have not read the entire script or heard the songs in context. There's a challenge for you all. Uh, I wish to make it clear, he said, that Edgy Productions does not advertise or promote its material to children. Teachers are our customers, and it's only through these teachers who make informed professional judgments as to what pr to present to their children uh, that they get to sing these songs and perform the script. Um, so, David, uh, that's the statement from Edgy Productions. Uh, I wonder what you think about that. Informed teachers making informed professional judgments. That would imply there's no pressure, there's no undue pressure on the teachers to comply with the government line. What planet is he on? Teachers and doctors and nurses are afraid for their jobs if they speak out against the government line. They're being coerced. What, where's he been? Has he ever spoken to a teacher? Um, well, I don't know, but he was very pleased but that he's making so much money that 10% uh, going to the uh, Colonel Tom Fund is going to uh, give them a big donation. So clearly lots of schools are involved in this. Now, the first person who wrote to me about this issue um, uh, in fact, the school concerned has decided not to run the play after all as a result of the number of comments that they received from the parents. Um, so at least one school has decided uh, to instead run another play. Uh, but there you go. That's, that's that. If you want to... Uh, uh, yes, David, sorry. No, I just wanted to say that the end of that was we're going to be running free. So I just thought I'd check on how the running free is going now that most of the population is vaccinated. Telford Rotary organised a virtual running event um, from, from July 1 to July 31. You can run, walk uh, 5, 10 or 50k, uh, but you do it on your own, in your own time. You don't do it in one place because you're not free to do that. So that's how free we are. We have virtual free running. Uh, well, indeed. So let's uh, come on to the situation with uh, whether or not, because the suggestion uh, that we suggested last week that perhaps uh, this would prime uh, year six students who are just about to go into uh, a secondary school in September 
Uh, and of course, the secondary schools, there's a question of whether the vaccine is going to be rolled out to uh, younger children through the secondary schools or not. Uh, this was the uh, headline in the Telegraph last week uh, on the 14th of June. Uh, children may need to get COVID jabs to avoid disruption to education. Move could limit damage caused by sc uh, to schooling, uh, says Professor Chris Whitty, as unions call for pupils to be fully vaccinated before return to class. Uh, well, in fact, at the end of last week, the government was appearing to push back against this, uh, this move to vaccinate children in schools. Uh, but then the uh, Daily Mail today is uh, headlining this. Gavin Williamson pressures Boris Johnson to back COVID jabs for pupils to help keep schools open as debate rages over ethics of vaccination children. Uh, Department of Health under huge pressure from the Department of Education. Uh, this is because teaching unions and school teachers uh, want easy way out of restrictions and ministers and advisors have been caught in the quandary over jabbing children. Uh, and uh, part of the article says the government's joint committee on vaccination immunization is deciding whether to extend vaccinations to the under 18s with one source suggesting a compromise could be found under which it is limited to the over 16s. Uh, last night, a source uh, at the education department said Mr. Williamson was not personally pushing for teenagers to be jabbed, adding he is waiting for the advice of the JCVI. A number 10 source said that it was entirely a matter for the JCVI not Downing Street, to decide whether to extend the immunisation programme. That, that last sentence, very significant there, because you could say on one hand, the government is passing the buck. On the other hand, something's happened with the constitutional setup in this country that we've now got a group of unelected scientists who are apparently deciding what's going to take place in the country. So think about that sentence and what it means. Because if those scientists are the same ones that are running the mod program for the augmentation of human beings, maybe they're going to be into eugenics as well. Uh, but nonetheless, there's clearly still a lot of discussion going on internally, or maybe it's only for the press that they're implying that That's the, the decision has probably already been made. They're certainly blaming it on the unions that the, that the pressure is there at all. Uh, but I suspect that is uh, uh, not necessarily the correct direction to be, uh, to be throwing the blame. Now, uh, David, this is The Sun, uh, and uh, they're saying nearly half a million COVID vaccination appointments have been missed in Scotland. Why would that be? Well, this is uh, information from Public Health Scotland, so you know it's reliable information and has been fully risk assessed to see if it's going to be an embarrassment to the Scottish Government. Uh, they report that 484,582 vaccination appointments have not been attended. And um, this is in the 30 to 39 bracket, about a third of all the appointments, and it falls for uh, older age groups. So there's a lot of people not turning up for the vaccine appointments. And the fact that it's skewed towards younger people is, of course, entirely sensible because younger people can presumably read the figures and know that they're at no risk from COVID. And they are at risk from the vaccine. And we're still waiting on the response from the Scottish Government. The Public Health Scotland couldn't answer the question as to where the risk assessment is that shows, as they claim, that the risk of the COVID for young people is more than the risk of the vaccine. Uh, we'll be very interested to see how rigorous that piece of scientific uh, argumentation and research is. Uh, but in the meantime, there is an acknowledgement that some people have uh, sadly died as a result of vaccine adverse re uh, reactions. Yes, this is new. 
All right, and the, the headline here again from The Sun, jab deaths, coronavirus Scotland, four Scots die of adverse reactions from vaccines, new data reveals. And they go on to say a report from the Na National Records of Scotland says that by the end of May, there have been four deaths where the underlying cause of death was adverse effects of COVID-19 vaccines. So this is from death certificates. Now, the, the rest, I haven't got anything more from this article because the rest of this Sun article was repetition of COVID fear. How scary COVID is, how bad it all is, why you should get vaccinated. After they've said, yes, it's killed four Scottish people. We know that for, for a fact. Now, of course, they didn't mention the yellow card scheme. The yellow card scheme today uh, is showing 1,300 and something, uh, 1,332 fatalities being reported to the yellow card scheme. So the Scottish proportion of that would be about 120. So that would suggest that that figure might be 30 times under the real figure. But of course, MHRA estimates that they're only picking up maybe around 10% of the serious reactions. So it might not be a 30-fold, it might be a 300-fold underestimate. None of those issues were raised by the sun. Uh, okay, so let's uh, move to India then. Yes, little. Uh, this is from the, the Telegraph Online, an Indian paper in Uttar Pradesh. A village refuses COVID vaccine and has its su power supply cut off. An absolutely remarkable um, uh, report. And thank you very much for the, the viewer who sent this to us. Uh, it reports over 100 families in the village um, are living in darkness for the last three days because they didn't want to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Quote, a team from the health department had visited our village on Wednesday morning. They wanted the entire village to be vaccinated. However, around 40% of the villagers refused to take the vaccine because they believed that their immunity level would go down for a few days and they might fall sick. I would have to say, remarkably well-educated and informed people in this Indian village. A villager who didn't want to be named told reporters on Friday. The medical team um, called the subdivisional magistrate and informed him about the resistance interesting language. Uh, they continue, the subdivisional magistrate arrived in the village and tried to convince us to get vaccinated. When we kept refusing, refusing, he suddenly got furious and called the electricity department officials. They disconnected the power supply in their homes on the order of the officer, the village, villager added. Even on Friday, some officers came and asked us to get inoculated, failing which they would take legal action against us. We know that they cannot take legal action, but the way they are threatening us is alarming, uh, Mahindra Singh, another villager, said. Now, the, the official state line is, it was a pure coincidence that the villagers' power was, was shut off at this time, because they hadn't been paying the bills, um, if you believe that. Uh, yes, good question. Now, a couple of, uh, lots of emails about a couple of uh, contracts, advertisements, tender advertisements that are appearing on various websites. Let's start off with this one. Uh, this is for digital staff passports for NHS. This is from NHS Improvement. Uh, it's a prior information notice published on the 6th of May, 2021. Um, and let's have a look at what they're asking for. Uh, digital staff passports, NHS England and NHS Improvement have been working to enable movements through the use of digital staff passports in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the COVID digital staff, uh, sorry, the COVID digital staff passport has been developed using verifiable credentials as an interim solution. NHS England and NHS Improvement now wishes to commence alpha work for longer term solution. Uh, the first invitations to tender for this new service line 
will include the following, designing and developing an alpha version of digital staff passports for permanent staff movements, uh, starting with doctors and training, and extending the use of the COVID digital staff passport to enable staff movements during the COVID pandemic for temporary staff movements. So, uh, David, this is quite a, a, an incredible uh, tender, although it's early stages of it. Um, and uh, it seems that if you're uh, going to be moved around from hospital to hospital or from wherever, uh, you're going to require some kind of mechanism to, to uh, make sure that the destination knows what your COVID status is and your, perhaps your vaccination status as well. But they've got medical records. If, if, it's, if it's legitimate that they know your medical history, then they would already have access to your medical records, surely. Is that not how this works? Uh, well, you Why are we thought, supplementing this? Uh, well, because, uh, yes. Okay, let's move on. Uh, and uh, another one which is a bit confusing because we're not entirely certain exactly what's going on here. Uh, this is from Westminster City Council and the uh, tender is for temporary body storage service. Uh, and it was uh, publication date on this is the 10th of June. Um, let's have a look at the wording of this. The authority seeks to procure a framework agreement for temporary body storage in the event of excess deaths situated, uh, sorry, in the event of an excess deaths situation for the 32 London boroughs and the City of London, led by Westminster City Council. The framework agreement will appoint a single provider and will be for a period of four years. Uh, this will be a contingency contract called only called upon in the event that an excess deaths situation arises in the future and existing local body storage capacity needs to be augmented. Uh, the overarching aim of this tender is to provide a single framework supplier that will be able to provide temporary body storage facilities to house deceased in the event of an excess death situation. The deceased will be stored with dignity and respect at locations to be determined based on local London needs at the time and will require some design elements to accommodate local site conditions and constraints while being capable of rapid deployment, construction and commissioning to an agreed standard. This framework will be procured by the authority as the pan-London lead, but all London local authorities may call off against the framework. Um, well, what I was not absolutely clear about this, uh, about with this, um, was first of all, is this just an effort to sort of consolidate the previous arrangements into one single contract with one single uh, supplier? But also, how does this fit with the already established national emergency mortuary arrangements, uh, which are home office run? Um, so um, we need to, we, we've asked uh, Westminster Council for clarification of this and, and also to get some idea from them about uh, what uh, kind of scenarios that they're preparing for. Um, so uh, we'll wait and see what response we get from them. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just going to say it is an interesting subject that suddenly we're, we're seeing all of this concern over, over bodies and moving bodies and uh, uh, in our chat box. Uh, it's been pointed out this is also happening in Cornwall and other places around the UK. So, so it would be nice if the government actually had the decency to tell the public why this has suddenly come up. But, well, that is the question. Is it sudden? Because, because we have reported many times about the natural, national emergency mortuary uh, arrangements. So, so there have always been uh, these scenarios in place. And also we've got to remember that uh, in April and May last year, uh, there were temporary mortuaries set up in Plymouth and many other 
cities around the world, uh, around the country already. So, so they obviously already had some kind of mechanism in place for doing that. So, yeah, and that was on a considerable scale. So, to see this ongoing, are they expecting the number of deaths to increase? Is the question that is that is the question? Yes, David. And remember, uh, two weeks ago, we we were reporting on Police Scotland and the Scottish Police Authority tendering for shelters to take bodies from mass casualty events. So there do seem to be a lot of uh, examples of this disaster planning um, suddenly coming to the fore. Yes, OK, thank you for that. Now, uh, last, I think it was October or so, uh, the NHS and uh, the Department of Health were very, very excited that the NHS app had uh, received 10 million downloads uh, very, very quickly after it was released. And well, we were less impressed with that, bearing in mind there's you've got 70 million people in the country and probably 40 to 50 million of those have, have phones and smartphones in particular. Uh, so that was the number then, 10 million downloads. Uh, but today the news is uh, that, uh, well, they have actually reached 6 million users. Uh, so they're claiming that there are now 6 million people registered to use the NHS app. Uh, and this is a very uh, key milestone. They're very excited about it. Uh, over 2 million new users since the inclusion of the COVID-19 vaccine status service on the 17th of May. Uh, but they said this, uh, the positive impact of this increase in downloads is potentially life-saving as over 51,000 people have registered their organ donation preference via the app since the 17th of May. Uh, this is over five times more than in the month of April. But the problem with that statement is it implies that that is something that they would like to see. But the issue that I have with it, David, is that we're now into an, 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 an automatic opt-in into organ donation. You do not need to register your organ donation preference unless you're actually wanting to opt out. So does this mean that 51,000 people have decided to opt out? In which case, how is that life-saving? Maybe that is life-saving because there's a recognition that not... Uh, so your analysis here, Mike, just proves the situation we're in that we cannot trust a word that comes out of the government machine, whether it's the government, central government, or it's the NHS. Right. We can't trust what they say. We don't know whether what they say is true. It, it is incredible. Any thoughts? Well, it's it's very it's at least very unclear exactly what they mean. And yeah, this is this is increasingly the the issue with anything that comes out of the state. The information, the basic data is not there. A lot of things are concealed, and you're left wondering. Yes. Okay, David, let's just uh, briefly finish uh, with Israel. Uh, and uh, this is from Haaretz. Explain the controversial law that endangers the new Israeli government. Right. So people will be aware that after many, many times of trying in about, I don't know, a year and a half without the government, Israel, hooray, now has a new government. Poor souls. Um, but it's, it, it's already running into trouble. And I, I wanted to go through this article because it, it gives people an indication as to just the nature of Israeli politics and how complex and convoluted and power hungry uh, it, it is. So the, the, the uh, Naftali Bennett's governing coalition uh, is split on ideological grounds over whether to extend the law which controls the reunification of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza with their partners, that's their marriage partners, who are Israeli citizens. 
controversial, uh, controversy revolves around the issue of whether Palestinians living in the West Bank of Gaza who marry Israeli citizens can be banned from living permanently in Israel with their spouses and denied a path to citizenship. Okay? So it then goes into the history, and, and in all things in Israel, you need to go into the history. The history of the law. In the years following the 67 Six Day War, thousands of Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza were permitted to move and settle within Israel on the basis of family unification, included in the framework with the spouses of Israeli Arab citizens. So what you see there is a, is a relatively benign, relatively reasonable starting point. Right? The situation changed after 2002, but at least one terrorist attack was perpetrated by a Palestinian who had received Israeli citizenship after marrying an Israeli Arab. In response, family unification procedures for Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza were frozen by the Israeli government, a move formalised in 2003 when the citizenship and entry law was passed. This prohibited the granting of Israeli citizenship or permanent residency to Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza, including through marriage. Now, uh, I, I will put in here, just to put this in context, lest anyone thinks one terrorist attack might be um, not not very serious necessarily issue. This this comes from the Second Intifada. This is the time of a great deal of bloodletting and and a, a good deal of, of, of trauma resulting from it. Um, this is not the specific case, but it, it, it illustrates um, the sort of thing that was happening. This is a, a, a record now from, from, the, from 2019, looking back 18 years ago to a 2001 attack on a pizza restaurant at the junction of Jaffa and King George in Jerusalem. This one means something to me personally because I've eaten in the restaurant and I've, I've heard bombs explode as I've walked up Jaffa, uh, Jaffa Road. Um, and uh, the report here is 18 years ago, August 9th, female terrorist, uh, Alam uh, Tamini uh, smuggled a bomb in a guitar case into Jerusalem and led a suicide bomber to the crowded Sabaro pizza shop in Jerusalem city centre. The suicide uh, bomber then blew himself up, murdering. Uh, he ate a slice of pizza, then blew himself up, murdering 15 people, seven, seven of them children, and wounding close to 130 others. And this, this was one of the worst, but by no means the only attack of this, this nature at the time. Um, Jerusalem Post uh, has has interviewed, uh, or, or rather reporting on an interview with uh, the, the terrorist who organised the bomb. She says, I have no regrets. Um, no Palestinian prisoner regrets what he or she has done. She's been, she was captured by the Israelis, she served time, and she was part of an Israeli uh, prisoner exchange for an Israeli soldier. Um, she, she continued, I'm part of an independence movement, a national liberation movement. Um, uh, why are we uh, are we defined as terror? Why is Alam, that was the suicide bomber, defined as terrorist? My job was to realise for this martyrdom seeking seeker the happy life that he wanted, right? And the Jerusalem Post continues since that fateful day in which two uh, two Americans were killed. Uh, the PA has has paid the seven terrorists who helped orchestrate the attack, as well as the Almazi family, nine hundred and ten thousand dollars according to a report released by Palestinian Media Watch. Today, the PA pays $7,321 to the terrorists and their families per month. So it's all, you, you can see from that the, the, there is ongoing hurt and distress and ongoing political machinations regarding the Second Intifada. This particular woman was on the wanted list from America because Americans were killed. 
um, and she was wanted by Interpol. Uh, and it, that only stopped being the case, despite the fact that she served some time inside already. Um, that only stopped being the case earlier um, this year. So going back to Harris, uh, going back to the law, ostensibly the law was designed as an emergency security regulation, you know, like um, um, the Official Secrets Act, uh, as an emergency security regulation in place for a single year. But since 2003, it's been extended by the Knesset annually, justified on the grounds that Israeli security services continue to believe that terrorist groups will exploit the family unification process to enter Israel through marriage and then commit attacks. So despite 18 years of relative peace, this is now being used, the, 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 the collective punishment continues. In 2005, an amendment was made to the law which permitted women over the age of 25 and men over the age of 35 to apply for temporary permits to live in Israel, but full citizenship was still off the table. Um, the law was expanded to apply to citizens of Iran, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon in 2007. Critics called the law racist and contended it violates the rights of Arab citizens to freely choose their life partners. They argue that it is motivated less by security issues and more by demographic considerations, a desire to preserve Israel's Jewish majority. The proponents speak openly about the demographics, uh, warning that tens or hundreds of thousands of West Bank and Gaza Palestinians would submit requests to become Israeli citizens every year if doing so was permitted. So you see that the, the issue here is one of the, the there is a subdivision. It's all about who can vote and who has power to control the state and who has not. And to maintain the Jewish and democratic nature of the state, it's necessary to exclude Arabs from moving in because then that would change the demographics. So that's that's openly admitted. That's one of the reasons um, that that law's in place. So it's not just about security, far from it. Um, uh, right, David, sorry. David, David, sorry, look, we're really out of time, but so, so just summarize the next little bit if you could. Well, the, the law's about to expire, right? And it's going to be, it's going to be replaced. And the next bit's the key that shows you how uh, extreme and odd uh, Israeli party politics is. If each party in the Knesset was to vote on ideological grounds, the law would pass. Okay, there's a majority in favour of this law in the in the parliament, but the parliament's now run by a coalition. Right? The coalition is left wing and includes left wing elements who favour negotiation with the Arabs, and it includes Arab MKs. Both of these oppose the law. Um, the opposition leader, now former prime minister. BB Netanyahu sees this as an opportunity to break up the coalition. So he's now instructing his supporters and asking other supporters who oppose this law, who want to who want to see this law in place, to oppose the law so that it fails, so that he could use that politically to show that the that the the um, new government is left wing and is soft on security. Right. So he's voting against what he wants in order to trip up the other government so he can get back into power. It's not about security, it's about power. Uh, and it, it, it concludes here, there's also talk of horse trading, trading with Likud, asking Likud to support the law and ignore uh, Bibi Netanyahu in exchange for legalising outposts in the West Bank. Um, Likud MK Zohar said his party would support the move in exchange for, appro for approving legislation to legalise illegally built West Bank outposts. So everything is now um, 
overlaid, one issue overlaid on another. It's all about internal politics. It's now a long way from the original uh, security and hu humanitarian concerns that were in favour and against the institution of this law. It's gone to the, U it's gone to the Supreme Court uh, in Israel, and the law has been endorsed by a 6-5 wafer-thin majority even there. You see how um, finely balanced everything is and how illogical um, much of the, the, the politicking becomes when you have BB now voting against a law which he supports simply to undermine the credibility of the, 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 the current government so he can get back into power. Thank you very much for that. Right. I, I just add, as you talk through that, David, I, I'm thinking to myself and how much of that approach is actually going on under the surface in UK on certain issues. Yes. Um, I think we'll, we, we can have a look at a few of those issues in the coming weeks. Uh, and we're just going to end then with, uh, uh, with this, David, uh, from the ship in. Uh, and uh, let's just blow up the text so that people can read it. Attention, by order of the Prime Minister, oh sorry, it's not on screen, right, okay. By order of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, restrictions will remain in place another month. Uh, no standing whilst drinking, masks to be worn, social distance and observe the rule of six. Boris is the blonde chap in the picture, standing up drinking without a mask, huddled together with 30 other people. Uh, and they have the, uh, the image on the board there. I think that is uh, very appropriate, David. Yes, well said, the ship in. Um, and this is uh, another example of uh, rules um, apply only to the common man and not to the great and the good. And another example that they know fine well that the rules do not uh, provide safety. They're not necessary. If they were necessary, they would do them. If they believed what they were telling us about COVID, they would, they would behave like it. They clearly don't. Um, they understand the relative risks um, and they understand fine well that it's the same as seasonal flu and they also understand fine well that it's summer. Um, and uh, by, by their actions, um, their beliefs are made clear. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to say, well done, the ship. We understand exactly what you're trying to say. Um, right. We will be back in a few minutes with extra for those on the UK column stream. And a big thank you to everybody who has been sending us emails of support and thanks. Really wonderful the amount of uh, communication we're getting from people thanking us for what we're doing. Thank you. It's a big boost. And uh, we will be back at shortly. Well, 1pm uh, for those that aren't joining us and uh, on Extra in a minute for those that are. See you then. Bye bye.